Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? This is Andrew Horn, and today on the show we have one of my entrepreneurial icons. And this man is Jim McCann. Jim is the founder of 1-800-Flowers, which most of you have certainly heard of, a multi-billion dollar company, which is impressive in its own right, but also not why I was so excited to have Jim on the show. The reason that I was excited to have Jim on the show is because of some values and mission that we share. That shared mission is really around fostering human connection, helping people to build relationships and community. And obviously we're doing that here with Tribute, um, and Jim's been doing it for the past 40 years with gifts, really using flowers and a variety of other gifts to help people to reach out, to be thoughtful, to connect. And now in some of the later stages of his success, um, Jim's really speaking directly to some of the issues that are affecting us today around loneliness and decreased participation in community organizations, you name it. Um, so Jim recently founded something called the Connectivity Council, where he's bringing together therapists and researchers and thought leaders to really share important ideas, statistics, and trends around these issues of human connection and community. Additionally, they've started to build uh, internal community forums within the 1-800-Flowers ecosystem that allows their millions of users to come together to ask questions, to share advice, lessons, and connect in meaningful ways. So uh, Jim's an incredible guy. Um, outside of his work with 1-800-Flowers, he started a, a nonprofit called Smile Farms that helps people with disabilities to tap into purpose through uh, meaningful work. And uh, really, you can tell that there is this through line of service and genuinely wanting to support people, which is what I really connected to, which obviously comes through in this episode. I'm so excited for you to take a listen. So without further ado, here is Jim McCann. Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? I am sitting here with one of my business idols, Jim McCann, founder of 1-800-Flowers. Jim, thank you so much for being here with us today. How are you? You got to get uh, different uh, idols. Well, You got to reach a little higher, man. You know, it's rare that I would say that, but <laughs> obviously being in the business of human connection, uh, there's not many people who can say that they've helped millions of people to give gifts with a focus on bringing them closer together and building relationships. And so um, I think I've got great idols and I'm <laughs> deeply inspired by the work and that you continue to, to innovate and do great stuff. And so um, what's ha what has your attention these days? What are you most excited about? Well, uh, attention is uh, fleeting. And uh, the thing that's interesting uh, to me these days from a business perspective is uh, that uh, as we emerge from uh, the darkest days of the COVID period, uh, that the things that we thought going in are the things that still matter the most coming out, and that's all about relationships. And I think the, the challenges we had in the last year and a half uh, will change a lot of relationships. Uh, certainly, we saw there's the good and the bad. Uh, the, the, the bad is the obvious. People got sick. People died. Uh, 
you know, over a half a million people, called 600,000 people, the last count we heard, uh, perished just in the United States from this disease. And that's terrible. And the nine people on average that each of them left behind grieving are in pain. Uh, and, and those are the obvious negatives. Uh, the not obvious negatives were the first line people who had to sacrifice so much, the first responders, uh, the medical people. Uh, but then look at, uh, and of course, the business people who were hurt on that. You know, people had jobs, lost jobs, people lost businesses. You had all of the obvious negative consequences. But as we emerge now, you see the human condition. You see how resilient we are as a people, how uh, we're fortunate enough to live in an, in an economy uh, that has great resilience in it. We had some failed leadership and some good leadership. And on the good leadership, first and foremost, I'd put the Federal Reserve which saw what could happen and stepped in in unprecedented ways and I think saved the world economy. Uh, so good, we, we saw good leadership in terms of vaccines, you know, uh, pre-manufacturing the top five uh, vaccines. So when they, it proved to be effective, they'd be available for distribution. That's thoughtful. So you have all of those things running through it. But at the end of the day, uh, we, we go back to looking at the world through our own glasses and through our own glasses, we see that uh, uh, even though we were quarantined, people yearned to express themselves and connect. They learned to stay meaningfully connected with the people that are important to them. They found new and creative ways to do it. Yes, uh, we're fortunate that they wanted to send flowers and food gifts and balloons and chocolates and personalized gifts to express themselves. But I think, uh, I think we all come out of this with a different sense of what's important. Uh, when you couldn't go anywhere, where you were locked down, you still found ways to uh, take joy out of relationships in your life, uh, a phone call, a text. And of course, we've all, uh, we've all learned to Zoom now. So you have a new verb born with Zoom. Uh, clearly, it was around before the pandemic, but it's been solidified as a, a verb and a way of communicating. And thank God for it. Imagine going through this last year and a half without the video technology, it would have been uh, much worse. Uh, grandparents staying connected with grandkids, seeing them grow, uh, maybe having more frequent contact because you know you weren't going to see them in person. When they're around a corner and you know you can see them anytime, it's not so special. Uh, but when you have to make a deliberate act to go see them, now all of a sudden that... So I, I, I think I think net-net we're very fortunate uh, in spite of the pains. And I think uh, it bodes well for, for people uh, and for people acting and being more deliberate about cultivating relationships and not taking them for granted. Yeah. And I'd love you, you talk about people expressing themselves through gifts. You talk about relationships. And I'm wondering if people obviously know 1-800-Flowers, but I'm curious if you go back in the history of the organization when that became clear to you that that was one of the driving values or missions to help people to cultivate those types of relationships with gifts? Like, was there a moment where it became clear to you that flowers initially like were a, a, a mechanism that could really aid relationships? I, I can't tell you, Andrew, that I know when the light switch went off. Uh, you know, I got into this because I got into the flower business because I wanted to get into a business and it was pretty uh, easy entry for me. And and, you know, one of those serendipitous moments in life, I met a guy who was selling his flower shop. Mm, maybe I could give it a try kind of thing. And, it ha and, it, and that's, how it, that's how it happened for me. 
But as I was in the business for a while, I realized what was nice about it, operating a single flower shop at that time, uh, I realized that we were at the center of a little community, uh, that people would come into our shop not just to buy something, just to say hello, uh, check on something, uh, just to chat, make themselves a, a cup of coffee. Whatever it was, uh, I realized that we had the potential to really be at the center of a community. And just before that, I was uh, working as a bartender. And one of the reasons I worked as a bartender is because you were at the center of things. So even if uh, you, you had built in social life slash social responsibility in that role. And I realized that the role of a florist could be similar, different but similar. And I, I remember one of the earliest stories. There was a, a lady who wrote me a letter. Uh, I think her name was Teresa. And uh, she lived in Brooklyn. And she lived in a house that was a, a semi-attached house. So uh, it had a common uh, front stoop. And uh, and there, uh, the wall. Uh, was on one side of the wall was one house, on the other side was the other house. Two two family houses, semi attached. And she said a sister lived next door, and she hadn't spoken to a sister in probably three or four years. And at this point, she wrote in a letter that she wasn't even sure uh, why they had, why they were fighting and why they had stopped speaking. And uh, she she heard me on a, some, a radio program talk about the power of flowers, and she ordered flowers and had them sent to herself with the purpose of giving them to a sister. And so uh, she left them at a sister, inside of the front door. There's a, a little hallway and with a note to a sister, and she put them there herself. And she said the next day she hadn't heard anything from her sister, and she came out the, her front door, and simultaneously a sister was coming out her front door. Now, normally, she said, we'd hardly even look at one another and just turn our backs and walk away. And she said, she, I just stood there and looked at her. And she said, no words were exchanged. And she just came up and put her arms around her and hugged. And the two of them just stood there hugging and crying. And I remember that story about, well, it wasn't the flowers that did it, but it was the gesture and what it meant and all the symbolic, uh, symbolic uh, uh, gestures that, that represents and that's one of the early memories of, of, of G's on an everyday, nonsensical kind of situation where they were not speaking for a long time and it was silly, mm. but it took something to break the ice. And in that case, it was the gesture. And in that case, it was a bouquet of flowers. And, uh, and I, I think of that story often about what gestures mean. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about as someone who's who's been thinking about now, on the other side of it, I'll tell you another story from that Please era. Please do, yeah, I, I love them. I'll also, take it. Brooklyn, yeah, we get visited by uh, uh, two FBI agents in our office, in our shop. Our office was in the basement of one of our shops, and they wanted to know who the sender of these flowers were that went to somebody in Brooklyn. And I said, "Well, we're really not allowed to give out that information." Uh, and then they explained why. They said, "Well, you delivered a funeral piece to someone's home." And that's unusual. You know, there's things that you deliver to a chapel or a church. And then there's other simply kinds of pieces that you deliver to home, but they're not the same. And I said, uh, yeah, well, that's unusual, but, you know, why does that matter? And they said, because they delivered a funeral, you delivered a funeral piece on behalf of somebody who, and it went to someone who was in a witness protection program. Mm. So we think they were sending a signal. (laughs) So they're symbolic and they can mean different things. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, it sounds like they were out in front of it. So <laughs> <laughs> literally. Yeah. And so when you start, what year did you start at 100 Flowers? 1976. 1976. And so you've been thinking about the context for meaningful expression, thoughtfulness, relationships for almost, yeah. like Not almost, for 45 for years. For 45 years. Maybe a little bit before that too. <laughs> so for, for 45 years. And so you've had this purview about how the nature of relationships has shifted. I'm so curious to hear um, what what aspect have you seen that may be giving you hope for where relationships are heading? Like you talked about Zoom and the ability to actually connect a little more emotionally through digital means. And also, are there things that worry you or trends that you see about relationships that are concerning to you on both sides of what do you see that you're hopeful about and what do you see that worries you as it comes to relationships and community in the digital age? Well, uh, I'll, I'll take you back to the flower shop. When, uh, when we realized uh, in our flower shop uh, that we could play an important role in people's lives and helping them express and connect, uh, it became more difficult to do that as we grew as a business because we had multiple locations now and then, and then embraced uh, an 800 telephone number as our primary convenient access modality, and then the internet, and then mobile and social and and now where we are today in a new kind of commerce we'll talk about later, uh, it became much more difficult to maintain those kinds of relationships. So how do we do that? We use technology to mimic the kinds of relationships we had in those early days when it was mono and mono. Uh, so I think the same is true about relationships today in that technology is playing a very interesting and useful role in allowing us to maintain maintain contact we, with kids we went to school with in grammar school and high school uh, using Facebook and Instagram. And I think that's good. There's always two sides to the sword. Uh, and the second side of that is I, I wonder about uh, the lack of depth of relationships that sometimes uh, permeates the social media. And, of course, we've seen people use it for bullying and things like that. So er everything is imperfect. Uh, but I think net-net positive that people can uh, develop more and better relationships, uh, develop a deeper understanding and knowledge of people using uh, technology, ergo social media at all. Uh, so I, I, think, uh, I think from a relationship point of view – uh, the the irony is with all these tools available to us, uh, Meredith Weinberg and I have uh, uh, been interested over the last several years in the uh, the uh, pandemic, the other pandemic, that being the pandemic of loneliness. And it it seems ironic to us that you can have all these tools available to you to develop and maintain and you know to invest in relationships. And more and more people feel lonelier than ever. So there's more people and there's more communication tools, yet more and more people feel lonely. Uh, we read an article written by two uh, bright Washington uh, uh, Wall Street Journal editors out of the D.C. office back in 2018 about my generation, the boomer generation, claiming to be the loneliest generation ever. And they cited interesting reasons for that. We are the first generation that moved away from where we lived and grew up in big numbers, first generation to see divorce in large numbers, uh, first 
generation to live as long as we did, you know, well into our 70s, uh, 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 contrasted with the generations before us. Uh, also embrace this thing called diabetes, you know, bad habits and the consequences of those those uh, behaviors. Uh, first generation with a lot of diabetes, which created other kinds of health issues. And we lived long enough that, uh, and if we didn't plan, we lived past our money. Uh, so you have divorce, you have estrangement, you're living away from the core where your family grew up, where you grew up. Uh, you don't have enough money. So maybe you, now you have physical issues. And now you're living in a place far away, maybe estranged from your uh, divorced spouse and maybe from your children. And you not you don't have a job anymore and you don't have money. And it's a pretty depressing uh, scenario. And they chronicled how prominent and and, and uh, uh, how in, in large numbers uh, people in the Booba generation had a similar set of experiences, which left them lonely, very lonely. Uh, and then we hear, uh, and then we do the research, and we read people like Harris and other polling organizations that show us that uh, uh, 23% of millennials say that they don't have a single friend, or how uh, 20% of, uh, of Generation Z says they're lonely most of the time, or that half the population says they experience a sense of loneliness at least a few times a year. Well, that's staggering. And so I think that's a concern. On the other hand, I think talking about it, researching it, and the availability in the public market now for tools for A, to develop an awareness, B, to understand how you can overcome that issue, how you can self-treat uh, yourself, I think offers promise to how that can that those uncomfortable trends can be reversed. And now you have things like social media where so, Meredith and I decided that even though we're a, 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 a collection of uh, websites that help people to express and connect through gifts, uh, maybe there's something we could do on the side that would be beneficial to this community of customers of ours. And so what we did was we um, found a company that uh, gave us the tools to create a peer-to-peer -peer help site. So we call it the Connection Community. And... Uh, People can come and do one of two things. They can come and say, hey, I'm having an issue with something. And is there someone out there who can help me with it who's been there and done mm -hmm. that? And the other part of that is people who've been there and done that can go and volunteer to help other people work through something. Let's, so, so let's say a, a kid's going away to college. And uh, uh, wouldn't it be great if she could go onto a site and communicate with people who are juniors and seniors in that same school in an anonymous kind of form and get tips on how to get started, how to uh, make friends in your dorm room. Uh, why not? What a wonderful way to make to buy insurance that your experience is going to be better because you got good advice from somebody. And so we created this peer-to-peer -peer help site. We have six communities that we uh, focus on where we, uh, we think our community has some expertise and can be helpful. It's around loneliness it's around caregivers, and there are an awful lot of people in this country who are caregivers, professionally and and because of a, a family circumstance, let's say, or they might just be helping a neighbor all the time. Uh, so uh, you might have a disabled child, a sibling, a parent. Uh, certainly Alzheimer's is, uh, is, uh, is just scary in its numbers and the number of people and families that it negatively impacts. And uh, 
wouldn't it be nice if there's a place where you can go and say, boy, I'm just really feeling overwhelmed today. And you can want to chat with uh, somebody who's been there and done that, either a professional or someone who's just been through that experience themselves. So I'm seeing more and more tools like our connection communities. And our motivation there is simple. It didn't cost us a lot of money in the, in the big scheme of things to make that technology available, but it's wonderful and rewarding for us to see a quarter of a million of members of our community get benefit from that that service we provide in our connection communities by enabling them to help one another. Yeah. So uh, somebody's already been there and done that. There's very few things that we experienced. Maybe Jeff Bezos even learned someone was in space just before him. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and so we've done things like that that really uh, make us proud and, uh, and make us say, what else can we do to uh, tap into resources that we have available to, do, to us to make them available to our broader community? I think one of the things that I hear when you're talking about the connection community as well is I think as people, as our lives become more uh, present in the digital world is that technology is not inherently bad or good. It's really how we use it, right? And that as the creators of these types like of tools. like bullets. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Bullets. <laughs> and so. And, bullets but, don't kill people, you know. <laughs> but so the, as a, one of the creators of this tool, like what I heard you say with that community is you set the very simple context of come here to ask questions and get help. And that that simple context for your users makes it easy for them to take an action that is going to be inherently more beneficial to them as well as the people who help get the benefit of contributing. Get the so personal reward. They get the personal reward of that, which is one of the most connected experiences that we have. And I'd love to talk a little more about your your kind of work in the realm of philanthropy and how, you, how you've uh, been building there. But it's it's that there's, there's research that a lot of people talk about the detrimental impact of social media, of the more time you spend on social media, the more your subjective well-being goes down. But there's actually less talked about studies that show that your subjective well-being can actually go up if you're using social media in an active way instead of a passive way. So if I'm on Facebook and I'm just scrolling through the feed and looking at things, then likely I'm going to end up feeling worse after I've done that because I'm just comparing my life to everyone else's. But if I'm actually going through my feed and I see one of my friends who just got a promotion and I write a comment that says, congratulations, Sally, I'm so proud of you. If I'm liking people's posts, then in that same way of contributing that it-, it Or if you just see that they have a birthday and you send them a birthday greeting and now you put them on your list of people you remember every year. So it, you're absolutely right. The technology itself is a tool. A tool. What do you do with it? And, and I think uh, just focusing on the negative of social media is missing the bigger point. Absolutely. Let me let me tell you how we've evolved now from uh, our efforts with our connection communities. Uh, there are a number of people uh, that Meredith and I, uh, uh, working on this project together, uh, call our COVID buddies. And that's an expression we took through a, a friend that we met online. Uh, and so in the earlier days of uh, the spring of 2020, COVID's uh, having its big impact, especially here on the East Coast. And I read an article uh, by a fellow by the name of Dan Willingham, who's a, a professor, PhD, psychologist, uh, professor at the University of Virginia. And I was blown away by it. It was in the Washington Post. And I, uh, I wrote him a fan letter. And I said, I, I just thought the points you made were terrific. 
and it was it just rang a bell for me. And I said, "Geez, someday I hope we have a chance to talk." And and he wrote back and said, "Geez, I don't know why you'd want to talk to me, but I'd love to talk to you. Why don't we do that?" And so we had a conversation, and we and we hit it off. And then Meredith spoke with them, and and then we spoke together. And uh, we were in a conversation. Meredith and I were with one of our very valuable uh, board board members here at uh, Flowers. His name is Larry Zarin, and he uh, he's a terrific guy. He's been a friend for more than 30 years. And he's originally a New Yorker. In spite of that, I like him a lot and respect the heck out of him. And he's a great thinker, a great marketer, a great linguist. And uh, we would, Meredith and I were telling him about this meeting we had, this this accidental uh, uh, relationship we developed with Dr. Dan Willingham. And Larry's suggestion was, you know, why don't you think about, because we were telling him what we were doing with the, uh, our connection communities and how we were inspired by how well this was going. And we told him that we wanted to then draw out certain subjects that we saw with great familiarity that we thought we had an expert that we could help uh, the dialogue around. And so we decided to create connection forums. And those were those six categories that I described to you that we have uh, communities around, uh, self-help communities. And I said, why don't we develop forums? And so he helped us think through that. And then he said, maybe you now want to c- create a expert panel who you go to on a regular basis to help you think through these things. He said, I'm not going to stop you because you're going down this path. I, you guys have a head of steam here. But maybe it would be a good idea to formalize your expertise. I, you, we're not saying we're the experts, but we know where to go get them. And he said, maybe it would help you to formalize that a bit by having a panel of experts that you called on to help you develop your content around these ideas and help you flesh out your thinking. And so we asked Dan, would he be interested in being on that? And so we didn't want to call it a mental health council. Uh, so we, we uh, uh, coined the term a connection uh, uh, our connectivity council, and Dan uh, Dan was happy to say, "Yeah, I, I think this is intriguing that a floral and gift company and you, uh, who you know I know about, uh, that you want to do this, and yeah, I'd like to help." And then uh, another, I read another letter to a guy who uh, wrote a piece in Psychology Today that I thought was terrific, and his name is uh, George Everly. And George is a remarkable guy and become a friend, too, like Dan has. And he's a psychologist as well. He's on the faculty of uh, Johns Hopkins at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. And uh, George was writing about the impact of big events uh, in a a post-traumatic stress kind of circumstance. And he's become an expert in the world on how people and groups and populations deal with stress from big cataclysmic events. War, uh, the meltdown of the nuclear reactors uh, in Japan uh, several years ago. And we got into a dialogue and he became our, our second COVID buddy who we asked to join our uh, our uh, uh, connectivity council. And we just found these two men to be so extraordinary and so thoughtful and so uh, uh, being able to serve up useful information in understandable, digestible nuggets that we couldn't wait to bring this information to our to our community. And back at the very beginning of uh, uh, this COVID experience, uh, I took to writing a letter uh, to uh, to our public, and it started to become a regular thing. And I'd write it every Sunday. 
never asked for a sale, uh, never tried to sell anything to our to our customers. Uh, what we did was just send them a letter of what we were thinking, what we were hearing, and sharing things like advice we got from Dr. George Everly at Johns Hopkins. Or we had a wonderful conversation with Dan Willingham about the impact of COVID at that time on children, young children in particular, where he has a deep uh, and wonderful reservoir of expertise. And we started sharing this. Well, the letters, now called the Celebrations Pulse, uh, have taken on a life of their own. And now I go reach out to George and Dan and Meredith and I do regularly to have conversations, say, here's what we're hearing from that group of customers now become a community. And here's some things on their mind. And here's some things they're concerned about. And then when we get the opportunity to go and intercede on our community's behalf and ask these wonderful and terrific uh, jewels uh, uh, in our culture uh, for, for help in their thoughts and their expertise and then share that. And then, uh, lo and behold, a, a mutual friend introduced me to a, a young lady named Dr. Chloe Carmichael, a uh, licensed clinical psychologist uh, with private practice here in New York, uh, a very accomplished author. And she and I were introduced. Meredith then got to know Chloe, got to know Chloe well. Meredith and I haven't met any of the three of them to this day, <laughs> but I genuinely feel a friendship and sure. a unbelievable respect for each of these three people so so it shows i would never anticipated that you'd have people that you'd so admire and so respect and feel a, a strong uh, friendship relationship with and never have met them in person but covid changes everything because of the evolution of technologies and the zoom and, and microsoft teams kinds of video connection and so that's how the evolution has taken place we start to write this letter because of how we're feeling about things during covid we have uh, 7 million people who read a letter each week. Uh, it's growing all the time. It's made a, a, such a positive contribution in our collective lives here at Flowers uh, because of the things I include from my, my brother who's the CEO here, uh, things about what's going on in my family with my kids, my grandkids. Uh, Meredith uh, is the editor-in-chief of this now. She gathers all these these uh, nuggets and we develop a calendar of things that we want to talk about relative to what uh, what uh, is calendared in our lives and then we have some free time in between where we can go off a little bit and now we've they've and that content contributes to the connection communities it now con contributes to the connection forums and we're doing a series now on uh, on caregivers and the special circumstances that they find themselves in, and the wealth of contribution that we're getting from our three members of our Connection Council, and the references and referrals they're giving us to other people who they think have something to contribute. They get that whole flywheel effect going you, on now. Can you speak on, because we've actually done uh, some extensive campaigns with caregivers as well, and a lot of what I learned in that community was very new to me. I'd be curious if you could extrapolate a little more about why the caregiver community specifically was in was in need of a dedicated platform or like what what you wish people knew about the very specific experience of caregivers well it's we we have a recurring theme you and i hear andrew in that there's always two edges uh uh to to uh to every to every question every subject and in terms of caregivers it's wonderful and rewarding what they do and so, so also can be very taxing, challenging, and and stressful. Uh, 
Am I doing the right thing? Uh, will I ever get out from under this? Uh, oh my God, I feel bad about wondering, will I ever get out from under this? All of those questions. And, you know, we had this conversation with uh, our friend, uh, Dr. Chloe Carmichael, about her newest book, uh, which is all about understanding that anxiety is a natural thing, stress, anxiety, et cetera. Understand it's a recurrence. And she says we have, again, two choices. We could make it a negative and leave it out there to spin out of control. Or you can say anxiety can be a positive in that it creates energy. And if I turn that energy and direct it in a positive way, I can make it a benefit, not just a, a, a tax. Mm. And, and and that comes back to our caregivers community, uh, whether it's a uh, whether it's a mom who has uh, three children and one has got special needs and is always going to need special care for the rest of her life. That's a, a different set of needs that that mom and that family are going to have in those siblings. Uh, or it's a. Uh, or it's the the pleasure you get. A, a friend of mine just lost his dad at a hundred, and uh, he's been his caregiver for the last uh, fifteen or sixteen, seventeen years. And uh, he could look at that. Oh, I was burdened with my dad for the last sixteen years, or he had the gift of the company of his dad and his and his children, and now his grandchildren uh, got to meet his father, who became their great grandfather. And uh, so it's all in the eye of the beholder, and sometimes we need help with figuring that out. And that's what we're that's what we're anxious to do to bring the wonderful message of a Chloe Carmichael to people who are in a caregiving situation, uh, to have the rest of the world understand what caregivers go through, sure, uh, to uh, help caregivers deal with all the emotions they have, and then the practical, you know, how do they get a day off? Uh, and you have uh, companies being built down like Care care.com which are, are focused on uh, all the different aspects of care so uh entrepreneurial ingenuity does a lot of good things uh, in this regard uh technology does a lot of good things you know the, the use of technology to help a caregiver give proper care medications etc uh reminding them that they need to be active and uh reminding people that the experience for them and for the person they're giving care for is so much better when they're proactive and have a plan and at work against a plan and not just sit around and wait for things to happen. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me when we, we worked with a, a pharmaceutical advertising company who was doing uh, support for a caregiver community that they created many years ago. And one of the things they introduced to me that was really novel uh, and like just articulated so acutely why caregivers need support need to be supported when they're in that experience is um, when you're in the role of caring for someone who has oftentimes like either a physical or mental ailment such a direct need that oftentimes they are filled with guilt when they are trying to satisfy their own very real needs whether that is just emotional support a day off and so they they feel the the need to sacrifice their own with someone to talk to yeah Totally. Yeah, there are so many emotions there that the whole experience can be richer both for the care recipient and the caregiver if they just know that it's okay and they have someone to talk to. So, so much of it is about information and dialogue and coaching and support, and that's what you know caregivers need. I, I think there's some exciting things that I've heard about that I don't know enough about where, uh, you know, certainly... Uh, uh, not everything uh, not everything comes back to COVID, but a lot does. And certainly we know the tragedy of what happened in nursing homes uh, during COVID. But I, I wonder if there won't be a move uh, to offer an alternative to that, 
uh, where I think it was it was either Vermont or New Hampshire was offering stipends to people to do caregiving to their family members or maybe just a neighbor in their own homes, in their own community. And uh, I thought that was a pretty uh, a thoughtful, progressive idea uh, and probably a lot cheaper for the state rather than having have the burden of, say, a nursing home. And I think that, look, there's always going to be a possibility for mis- misuse or abuse, but you can't just deal with the exceptions. You have to monitor for them, obviously. But I think if more people stayed at home, I think, but let's let's be real, the caregiver, caregiver gets a lot out of it too. And uh, if you had the means then to take care of an older relative in their home or your home and not have them uh, institutionalized in some way or another, it sounds to me like a much better outcome for everybody, for the payor, in that case the state, uh, for the caregiver and for the care recipient. Yeah. It always strikes me as one of the opportunities and like the more existential questions about the future of work. But if you just look at the amount of people who are going to require direct caregiving um, and the amount of like unemployed individuals that there is a bevy of work to be completed there that is highly purposeful. Um, and so before we move on from the, the Connectivity Council, I, I was hoping – to ask you and then possibly even Meredith if she, if she wants to contribute, but because I've been following these now and I really enjoy them. And so I'm curious if you could share a few of your favorite points or uh, messages that have come through those emails to your, your community. Like what are some of the messages that you felt were most important for the current time we're living in? I'll, I'll go back. Uh, I already mentioned one uh, that we wrote about recently, which was uh, uh, Chloe Carmichael's counsel in terms of how to, uh, in her latest book, uh, 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 nervous energy, uh, how, to, how to harness it and, and manage it. And uh, the second one that comes to mind is uh, well, uh, two more. One, one from George Everly uh, and the second one from Dr. Dan Willingham. Uh, George Everly, uh, in the very beginning, I'm going to ask Meredith to help me with this, uh, but George Everly uh, uh, wrote a piece for us after a conversation we had. And he said, here are the five things that you should, you should do with regard to relationships. So help me here, Meredith. First one is uh, embrace the relationships, the friendships you have. Uh, the second one was to... Uh, uh, to uh, I think it was make the relationships that you wish that you had. Hmm. Develop the relationships that you wish. And there was a third. Uh, make a list of those relationships that have waned that you want to reinvigorate. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, make a list of the relationships you already have that you want to invest in to make them better and richer. I, I advocate for a lot of our audience to do something similar. I say uh, if you just write down a list of all of your, your current friends and the people that you want to cultivate friendships with and then my, my lens through it is to then rate yourself on a scale of one to 10 of how good of a friend you're being. That's and, a great idea. <laughs> and so you evaluate how present am I in this relationship? And basically you see, it's like I say, so if you're a nine or a 10, you're good. You don't have to reach out to those people, but anything below don't, don't reach out and say, Hey, I'm sorry for being a bad friend. Just reach out. Just say, Hey, I've been thinking about you. I was just thinking about relationships that matter to me. And you're one of them. Like, let me know if I can ever support and that simple audit of who is in my life, I found I did it post COVID myself. And it's like not even just like telling others to do it, but I did it. And it was really helpful. Some of my core relationships had fundamentally shifted over the past 16 months. So you were going to say something, Meredith. 
Another favorite letter was the coping with loss letter. So it was really different. Can you hold it a little right? Yeah, sure. We wrote about loss at at a very, um, very critical time in terms of how many people had lost loved ones over COVID. And um, it was different for us. We just went right for it. And we talked about it. We talked about all the work we were doing, all the funeral directors we had been speaking to, the work with Melissa Owen um, on the Flowers team. And someone wrote to us, and he was a police commissioner out of, I forget that, Colorado. And he said, thank you so much for taking this head on. We have had so much loss, both in my community, um, within the police department, and also within my own family. And we don't talk about it in any of those groups. However, you spoke about it with us. And this has, you know, changed my whole weekend because mm-hmm. we send them usually on Sundays. Sure. And you said you sent that uh, our pulse on to dozens of other people. Within his communities. And, and so we reached back out and said, thank you so much for sharing this with us. It means so much to us um, that you're following us and that this means something to you. And then we shared his story back out the next week. Yeah. And so just this cycle, uh, that totally. was an amazing moment. Mary, tell the story about the fellow who uh, sent out gifts on his birthday. We had another customer, Glygor, who was celebrating his 55th birthday, and he was planning on getting all his friends and family together. And of course, it's COVID, and he couldn't do that. So instead, he sent everyone else a a gift from us. And so he sent, um, I think it was for his 55th birthday, 55 cookies from Cheryl's. And so we reached out to him also and said, hey, we we saw what you ordered for your own birthday, and Mm. would you share the story? So Glygor and I, he was so excited. Glagor, Jim, and I were editing his copy. He said, actually, could I help write this with you? So we've actually <laughs> held hands with our customers and really community members uh, throughout this process. It's, it's been great. And then uh, another impactful, I have a, a buddy who has a son who had a, a, a spinal cord injury and so uh, is, uh, is a quadriplegic, uh, a wonderful young man. And uh We wrote about the Americans with Disabilities Act last year, and it's coming up again, the anniversary. We wrote it on the 25th anniversary. This year will be the 26th, obviously, anniversary of it. And uh, I didn't know him before. I knew his dad, but I didn't know him. And he lives out of town, and he was in town to visit his dad. And he saw me uh, uh, at a a public place, and his dad asked me if I'd come over to the table to say hello. He wanted to introduce me to his son. And his son had printed out a copy of what we wrote about the Americans with Disabilities Act. Wow. Uh, in his pocket and uh, his dad took it out for him and he said i want to tell you how impacted i was by what you wrote this past sunday because i carry it around with me now wow and uh and i get goosebumps when we think about that because what we've learned is the people who are in our customer base Hmm. are people who are thoughtful and want to express themselves and connect and uh and do that through sending of gifts but they're very, very special people. And the more that we get to interact and become more genuinely a community, mm. uh, I'm knocked out by the power of the messages from our Connectivity Council that we're privileged to bring to them in our in our Celebrations Pulse, in our connection communities, on our connection forums. And now we're, we're, we're spreading out where we've, we've created book clubs, virtual book clubs, and we have some terrific authors that have uh, – knocking on a door to get involved in a book club because they want to get to our community. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, the one thing we haven't talked about mm. and all the things that we're excited about is transactions. Tell me more. All these things we're doing, yeah. it makes 
some people around here nuts <laughs> because they we can't say that it has a benefit to business. We can't prove it. But in our hearts and our in our minds, we're certain that if you have more and better relationships, somehow, some way it's gonna be better for you. Yeah. You're gonna earn consideration among your community that we have the strength and conviction that we don't need to be able to plot it out on a spreadsheet. Uh, but that's those are the things that get us excited. Our Harry and David dinners of the month that were in person, and then we had to switch to virtual. Our our book clubs, our Wolfermans. We have a wonderful brand called Wolfermans, which is our our uh, our bakery brand. And I'll ask Meredith to tell you about uh, an idea that came up on a, a Friday night, probably seven seven thirty. Meredith says, "All right, let, when's he going to stop? I want to get on with my weekend." And we got this crazy idea chatting with the two young ladies. Uh, 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 Sierra and Lucy uh, out at uh, Wolfman's uh, Bakery and we had a brainstorming session with them and uh, this idea came up. I think it was Sierra, Sierra. that Can I just came- say I just love seeing the two of you tag team it because the excitement <laughs> is so palpable as you're yeah, passing it back is, and forth. This is every day for us. Uh- <laughs> this is the first day we've been in person in a year and a half. No Truly. way, really. Truly. Oh, exist beyond the there you go. Great. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how that happens. Um, so we have some amazing emerging brands, as Jim said, um, Wolfermans being one of them. We have brands like Moose Munch, the, you know, what does Steve Lightman say? Good for the soul. Cool. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so it's like a caramel popcorn line, good for the soul, not so much good for you. Um, so Jim was in a touch base with that team, like a very excited, energetic team that's really doing so many great things with Wolfermans. And we were talking about maybe making a breakfast show, almost like The View, just a bunch of people chatting with their Wolfermans product um, and baked goods. And it was, I believe, Sierra who said, well, we have to make this 30 minutes because who has an hour for breakfast? And we thought, okay, well, there's the tagline. I mean, that's just it. So we developed breakfast at Wolferman's Bakery and it's um, a 30 minute sort of talk show. And we just kind of chat and we had Dr. Chloe come for Mother's Day to chat with an influencer, uh, a mommy blogger about uh, fun things to do for Mother's Day. And we've just been running with it. We'll do back to school. And I believe those are monthly uh, now. It was Lucy who said... Uh understand Jim with Wolfman's we just want to own breakfast and that's when this breakfast show idea came out yeah so between Lucy and Sierra it was just sort of the brainchild of this and Jim and I helped the team to craft it and now they're running with it and And, uh, what kind of viewership do these shows get about 160,000 views would wow. be low. Yeah. So both live and then post. So uh, we'll be sure to have you on for breakfast at um, Wolfermans. I will love to join. Good for the soul. I know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. Not for the no, not for the waistline, but for the soul. Well, so I'm, I'm curious um, to hear more of like what, I, what I'm seeing emerging right now is this theme of community. And we've talked about relationships, right? And so for me, community is kind of like the, the manifestation of those in a collective or a group. And so I'm curious how you are thinking about community and culturally, like how you see the role of community shifting. Obviously, you've been thinking about it for many years and how you think about community as a force in your business, which it sounds like you really are thinking about that through the the connection platforms. Yeah, I'll give it. I think it comes back, Andrew, to uh, 45 years ago. Uh, I told you we became a little centerpiece of our community. We were the, the, the touch point. And that's what we're trying to do today. And our business grew and grew then. We never spent a dollar on advertising and marketing. Not a dollar. But our business kept growing. And, and 
then when you say, okay, why is it growing? It's, well, we're getting to know more and more people. We're doing more and more things in the community. Well, that's what we're doing now. <laughs> and the, the privilege for us is that we, we genuinely believe we're getting to help people, help people think about things in a different way and getting them, giving them tools to have a, a more and better friends. And there's a very selfish motivation for that, for us in that. If people have more and better relationships in their life, there are going to be more birthdays and more anniversaries and more new babies uh, that they're going to want to express themselves around. Sometimes that expression is going to come in the form of a gift. And when it does, we will hope that we've earned their consideration and that we have the right products and the right services to help them to express. So it's a pretty virtuous circle. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a sneaky way of marketing by not doing any marketing. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll, I'll share a statistic. My friend Ben runs a company called Splash. They do events, kind of like an Eventbrite competitor. And um, he told me recently that there was a statistic that was launched, and it said that uh, picnics around North America are down by 50%. This was before COVID, too. Obviously, picnics had a, a pretty tough year, but that people are having 50% less picnics. And for him, it was like heartbreaking. I'm just like, people aren't having picnics anymore. And he was talking about the the shrinking community organizations, whether those be religious or communal. Um, I used to hear it was the Kiwanis picnic. You don't need that anymore. Yeah, totally. And so, and so, what do you what do you think? Kind of like, what are you? What are your what are your hopes for how community evolves in the digital age? Or like, as you've been building your communities online, with it sounds like hundreds of thousands of users now, how do you think about building community in the digital age? Why don't you talk about that? We have an interest this summer in inciting and inspiring people to re-engage in family reunions. Ah, cool. So Jim mentioned just just to touch base because Jim didn't have the mic, but so they have a a renewed interest in helping people to celebrate family reunions, which Meredith is going to touch on. We've been encouraging people to share their summer traditions in the Pulse newsletter. And in terms of community in the business, my hope is that talking about not customers, but community members through the Celebrations Pulse, which touches 7 million people, sort of reframes how we think about customers in general. So it's sort of like the first touch point because you can join the Celebrations Pulse community. You don't have to buy a thing from us. You can just follow our newsletters and share. So last summer, we had to encourage people to think about summer goals and traditions very differently Mm -hmm. because we realized there probably would not be family reunions. Summer vacations were very limited. And so we reframed that to say, okay, the summer is going to come and go. What are your goals? How can you use this time productively? And so this summer, we're excited to hear from our community about, okay, things are a little bit different, various, you know, varying circumstances for different people, but how are you using this summer to really reconnect, have family reunions, and sort of get back into the swing of things? So we've been reading through all those stories right now. We're actually running a sweeps on it as we speak. So that, that. yeah, that's great. Beginning of uh, July, we wrote a piece about, okay, we're going to be able to get out this summer. We're going to move around a little bit more. And what does that mean? Road trips. (laughs) (laughs) And we started sharing stories about, okay, what I remember about road trip, you know, because a vacation in the McCann family, when we were growing up, we had no money. Would be maybe we'd rent a house up in the out in the, out in the country uh, for a week or two, and uh, and load into the car and off we'd go. And then it was okay. What did you do in a car ride? And we had such wonderful responses from people about I, a road trip was the thing for me. And by the way, I, a, a fellow right wrote now. to me, "How ironic that I'm reading your piece about road trips when I'm on a road trip." Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we had some really fun feedback uh, from the community about uh, ideas of what games they played in the car, you know, what song their father always made them sing, that kind of stuff. So it was, that's what's so much fun about uh, what we're doing now is, and we're just turning the dial now on the interactivity. It's been pretty much push out for the first year and a half, and it's more and more now about inviting our public to engage. And when we do, it's it's fun. I mean, it's really interesting. And what is, when you think about the Connectivity Council, when you think about the newsletter, when you think about uh, the forums, um, what is the impact that you hope it has? And when you look about it going into the future, um, how do you hope it impacts people and what impact do you hope it has on, on society at large? Well, I hope I don't know. I hope I don't know what the impact will be. The, 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 the feedback, the interactions we've had so far, I spoke at a conference uh, last week. To, I've made two business trips uh, <laughs> in the last two weeks, the first in a year and a half. And uh, I spoke at a conference uh, last week that was a terrific conference. And the number of people who came up to me and talked to me about things that I'd written in the letter, in the Pulse, is surprised the heck out of me. Uh, really, you know, the people from all different parts of the country and uh, that they were attuned to what we were writing about and they knew uh, our Connectivity Council, they knew George Everly, and I think George is a most fascinating man anyway. I mean, he's had just your typical career. Uh, started out trained as an accountant, became a CPA. Oh, and then uh, he toured as a jazz musician with Miles Davis for a couple of years. No big deal. Oh, and by the way, a professional bodybuilder for five years. Oh, and then thought the psychology thing was interesting, so got a couple of PhDs, became an expert on it. And uh, oh, by the way, he's written 28 books, but is so dyslexic, he really has a hard time reading a book, but will quote philosophers and psychologists from uh, centuries ago uh, and fully, uh, fully quote their uh, their their uh, their statement to the to the word. I mean, it's just a remarkable human being. But that we get to meet these people, to know these people, and in some cases, really befriend these people, and then bring their message back to our community. I don't know what the outcome of, of that'll be, Andrew, in the long, bigger picture, but I know it won't be bad. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's uh, the the motivation is. Like something that I'm, I'm excited to explore of where all this is coming from. Like it's, it's so obvious to me. And again, it's when I, when I speak to my admiration that I have for your work is, um, is where I feel that it's coming from of truly the desire to, to help people to connect, to be of service. And so if we look at that through line of helping people, uh, when did that become clear to you as not just an entrepreneur, but as a person that service support was important to you? I don't want to trivialize it, but I was born uh, 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 growing up. I was a shy kid, and Same. I'm a shy kid in recovery now. And one of the lessons somebody taught me that I've tried to teach other people, like my friend here, Mer, <laughs> and my kids, is the best. Way, you know, if you go to a social function, you feel uncomfortable. Act like a host. Hmm. What does a host do? Host looks around and says, I want to make sure everyone's met everyone. I want to make sure they're all in interesting conversations. I want to make sure no one feels uncomfortable standing by themselves. And when you're busy trying to do that, you forget your own discomfort totally. because you're totally focused on making other people feel comfortable. 
So our, so our pursuit here, my pursuit here is I want more and better relationships. And, if, and so it's my personal pursuit on behalf of me and my family and my friends, my colleagues, my work, co-workers. So if we can help other people to have more and better relationships while we're in pursuit of our own, ergo, <laughs> why I decided to study psychology in school. <laughs> yeah. I want to know more about myself. I want to be a better person. And if and why my first career was in the social services, so yeah, uh, it's it's selfish. What did, what did you I want to have more and better relationships. Therefore, if I can help enough other people to have more and better relationships in their life, I'm helping myself too. Yeah, my my wife often talks about. Uh, she does a lot of work with uh, with women entrepreneurs and young entrepreneurs, and she says, "What's a problem that you're experiencing that you think you can be passionate about for a long time? Just connect with that, and then say, do other people have this problem?'" And if so, you've likely got a business that you can probably put together behind that Like after those two questions. And so you mentioned that you were in the social services. And I'm curious, what, what work did you do in the social services when you were younger? Well, as a very young uh, person, I, uh, I accidentally got a job in a home for teenage boys. And I moved in and lived in a group home uh, with uh, 10 young men. And it was a life-changing experience for me. So uh, I'm in the same pursuit. I was... I was in charge of helping them to have better lives, better structure, overcome real, real challenges. And uh, I found it extremely, extremely rewarding. Not monetarily. <laughs> Working in a not-for-profit social work world, you don't, you don't, uh, you don't uh, gather any riches. But uh, so I, I guess I, the, the pursuit hasn't changed, just the product. Yeah, sure. And then also we have a, a connection through our work in the realm of, of disability advocacy and, and vocational training. And so I'd love if you could tell a little more about Smile Farms and how you got involved in that work and how it's tied into 1-800. Yeah. Sure. So Smile Farms offers individuals with disabilities the opportunity to work in agricultural settings. And yeah. we were just chatting with the, the amazing team this morning about it. And it's um, it's something I think that came from Jim through his work uh, to help as a family, his brother, Kevin. Um, and it has really become the social glue at 1-800-Flowers. And it's something that we all pitch in to help, to help build, to help grow. Um, and it, it means so much to all of us here, truly. Yeah. I love that. And so your, your relationship with Kevin is what inspired it. Uh, in a very practical manner, uh, my brother Kevin lives in a wonderful uh, group home run by an agency called IGHL, Independent Group Home Living. Uh, a very good friend of mine founded that place 43 years ago. Uh, so we, we were busy in our youths <laughs> uh, starting things. I started a flower business. He started IGHL to help uh, uh, some people who were being put out of a, a, a state institution called Willowbrook here in New York State. Yeah. And he opened up one group home. Fast forward a quick 43 years later, he takes care of about eight or 9,000 people every day. Some live in group homes, some go to day hair programs all over uh, the Long Island area, Nassau, Suffolk counties, and growing all the time. The need is overwhelming. He called me uh, about six years ago and said, uh, Jim, uh, you know, uh, your brother Kevin should be uh, working in the community. Uh, the biggest challenge I have with people like your brother Kevin, who are higher functioning, but still in, in need of care, uh, is loneliness again. Mm -hmm. They didn't have anything to do. And he said they, he should be working in the community, but I can't find him or any of my guys' jobs in the community. I have an idea. Why don't you and Chris whip out the checkbook 
and we were going to buy this piece of land, erect some greenhouses on it, grow some uh, flowers and plants that we know where they'd be sold. Uh, we could make sure we bought them from them. So we created this not-for-profit called, we decided to call it Smile Farms, to give a few people uh, who needed jobs, jobs. And you know and I know, and Meredith will tell you in great detail, that a job is a lot more than about a paycheck. It's about a reason to get up in the morning. It's social. Totally. It's about uh, feeling connected to things, contributing to your community, and the fact that they get to grow flowers and plants and now a lot of food stuff, uh, and they get to help other people who have food insecurity kinds of situations. It is quite wonderful. And as Meredith stated, we're so uh, Chris and I are so proud and pleased at how the young people here at Flowers uh give it themselves all the time every time we're running an event a fundraiser a project the volunteers i mean everyone said oh these young people they're selfish they're they, they don't work very hard they're self-centered it's nonsense they work hard they care about what they do they care about their community and they volunteer their time in in great quantities that just surprise and delight me and so as mary said it's become the social glue here at Flowers and Harry and David and Cheryl's and uh, Personalization, all our companies, because our people are just thoughtful, giving, caring people. And so, yes, we're doing a lot. You know, we have several hundred people now working in uh, in Smile Farms, and we provide them with that paycheck. Uh, but the other benefit is how it's it's helped us attract some really, really special people to work here. Yeah. And they refer friends just like them to come here because of how – how connected they feel because of their work with Smile Farms. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love in these conversations when I see through lines start to emerge. And um, I had a similar realization in, in my work with Dreams for Kids about how we were providing adaptive athletics through this nonprofit, but that one of the the greatest sources of fulfillment that I felt in my own life was was tapping into my ability to contribute, to give back. And that oftentimes, especially for people with disabilities, that they're often relegated as, as purely the recipients of service, of support, and that they weren't given the opportunity to contribute. And exactly you said there. The idea yeah. of one a person with one kind of need helping someone with a different kind of need is really, really powerful. Yeah. We have some seniors who volunteer and work in Smile Farms. We have our Smile Farm farmers who I think the best day of their year is the day when the crop is so plentiful uh, coming up next month with our cucumbers and tomatoes that they get to load them in the truck and take them to the food kitchen and see you know, the expression on people's face when they see these big, beautiful cucumbers and tomatoes and peppers arrive because we have such an abundance. And when they come back and the smiles on their faces, uh, that they just know that they help somebody else, as you say, changing roles. They're not the recipient of care, they're the deliverer of care. Yeah. It's a... Uh, it's very powerful. Well, but even and even the through line to take it even further, like if we think about flowers, it is you're inherently your customers are the givers, right? They're the people who are in that role of giving. You talked about I forget his name, but the the gentleman who gave friend like all the the gifts out, yeah, on his Glagor, yeah, Glagor, yeah, or um, you know, again in your forums. It's not just people that are going there with information to learn. It's saying, share what you know. I have know. something to give. I have something to give here. I think it is so fundamental to, for me, what you're doing is, is again, it's, it's looking at, and even you talked about hosting, right? It's not, don't be a passive participant, contribute. How can you contribute to what's happening there? I think that when it comes to community in all forms, analog, digital, if you can just think about how you can give um, oftentimes I think it's a little bit easier to, to feel connected and it's really 
exciting to see how all that's kind of interwoven into the work. And so um, it's all connected, Andrew. <laughs> it's all it's all connected. And so, all right, well, we're, we're getting towards the end because I know that I think we have probably um, what's our timing? We have just a couple of minutes. OK, great. Um, so one of my favorite things, we'll do a couple of rapid fires to bring it home. And so um, at Tribute, one of the things that we really focus on is on the importance of sharing our appreciation, gratitude, love for the people that we care about who've impacted our lives. And so I'm curious, if you look back on your professional journey, who would you acknowledge as uh, one of the mentors who has had the greatest impact on you as an entrepreneur? I just spoke about him uh, uh, last night. Uh, I was introduced to somebody on the telephone. I've never met him in person, but he came a, became a COVID buddy, and he lives in uh, the Fort Lauderdale area. And uh, knowing his age, I said, have you ever met, uh, did you ever meet uh, a hero and mentor of mine? And his name is Wayne Heisinger. Hmm. And he said, this, this fellow's name was Jack, Jack Abdo. And he said, yeah, and I, I knew Wayne very, very well. We were very close. We were one of about 20 guys that did a lot of stuff together. And so we shared some great stories. And And I didn't spend a lot of time with Wayne, but uh, we had a mutual friend introduced him because, you know, I had expressed some real reverence for him, uh, and, but I hadn't met him. I'd seen him speak a couple of times, but I had never met him. So he said, come on down to Florida. You know, I know him well. You're going to meet him. And uh, so I did that several times. And one of the real treats was uh, – uh, in the later years, I got to bring my brother Chris. I said, "You look, you've been hearing me talk about him all these years. Mm. I want you to come meet him yourself." And so we spent some time together. But he was a—he's a remarkable man. He created five different Fortune 500 companies, uh, a lot of other companies too. But I mean, that's remarkable. That doesn't—no one does that. And he was just a his guy started out with a very uh, high-fluting job, a garbage man. <laughs> and he created waste management. He created Republic Industries, okay. Blockbuster. Uh, Swisher, uh, extended stay of America. He owned the Marlins, the uh, the the, uh, the the hockey team in Florida, the Panthers, the Panthers, yeah. and uh, of course a little team called the Miami Dolphins. <laughs> Sold them all. Yeah. They weren't good businesses, but he was a remarkable man and a remarkable entrepreneur. And the the when I think of him, what comes to mind right away is Jim. You and I are entrepreneurs. That means we make a lot of mistakes. Mm. But the difference between you and me and so many other people in this world is we're not afraid to make mistakes. We laugh at them. Sometimes we make it a joke about ourselves. We pick ourselves up. We dust ourselves off and we get on with it and we get on with it quickly. And I, I retell that to so many people so many times because he said, you know, it's the guy who's sitting there saying, oh, I made a mistake. I'm so I'll never ever do that again. And every time they say that, they restrict the possibility of things that they would ever try and do because they're so fearful of making a mistake. Yeah. And he, and and I learned that lesson from him. And I went on from my interactions with him to make fun of all the mistakes. Uh, not all of them. Some I would, I'd rather you not know. <laughs> but <laughs> that'll uh, be interview number two. But that you know, he he was a great influence on my life. Yeah. I'm cur- I'm curious to ask Merritt the same question. A mentor who's had like a significant impact on your trajectory as a, as a businesswoman, as an entrepreneur yourself. It's funny. I was just talking to our intern, Malia Walsh, about this and mentorship because I am trying to mentor her as I've tried to mentor so many other people. And I said to her, um, don't expect you'll have a mentor. I had not had a mentor in 
forever until mm. I met Jim. I had not had a mentor. Mm. And I said, no one took an interest in me. I just kept working and I just kept trying and doing the best I could. So don't expect it, but be lucky if you find it. And I, I said, I'll do this for you, but just know nobody did it for me. So just understand that it's a blessing if anyone ever takes an interest in you. <laughs> Meredith has mentored each of our interns each summer and developed some wonderful people. Uh, some of whom have gone on to significant roles here in the company and others who will benefit from that experience forever. So whoever gets to be our our uh, intern in the summertime uh, is very lucky. And this young gal, Malia, that she's talking about, I've, I've not met her in person either, uh, but she seems to be a lucky recipient sure. of uh, Meredith's mentorship. What, what's Thank been you. one of the biggest lessons that you've learned being mentored by Jim? So many. Uh, Jim gives everyone's opinion a, a real chance hmm. and does not – We, I have met so many people so much less competent who think that they know everything and they don't want to hear from anyone who might be more junior to them and sort of this arrogance. And Jim comes at it exactly the opposite way. So everyone has a place um, for an opinion, yeah. for a thought. If you say something interesting, we'll jot it down and research it later. And so Jim and I are always curious and always looking to learn and don't have all the answers about anything. Yeah. And so Jim is extremely humble. Yeah, I love that. All right. So last one here, because I know you have to take off. As someone who has facilitated maybe more gifts than anyone else on the planet, what is the best gift that you have ever received? Uh, I, I, I've mentioned this frequently because I'm at a point in my life where I'm extremely fortunate. I have wonderful friends, associates, uh, family. I have three uh, kids. They each married well. They have uh, six plus grandkids. Uh, but I tell them when it comes to there's nothing you can give me. I don't need anything. I don't want anything except something personalized, something that they made, something that they put their thought into. And uh, when, uh, during COVID, you're cleaning things out. And I was cleaning out a, a, a dresser top and desktop. And, and I realized at the end, the only things I didn't throw out were the things that were someone wrote on or it's a picture that they wrote on or it's something that one of the grandkids made. So something that sh conveys your, your thoughtful sentiment is what matters most. So it's not the bouquet. It's the message on the card. Do you want to answer that one too? And then we'll gift you know we've talked so much about gifts because we're looking at gifts that are experiences yeah, and sure. so you know 80 percent of millennials will take an experience over a gift which i think is so interesting yeah, totally. so um at Right now, I'm also trying to declutter, so I, there's not much stuff I want, um, but any experience that broadens my horizons, yeah. I, I'm in for. I'll have to introduce you guys to someone we've had on the podcast named Tom Gilovich, who he pioneered the research about how we should invest in experiences over things. Oh, we He's a professor him. at Cornell. He's great. He did an amazing show with us, so he's great. I'll make that. <laughs> See, I told you. One of the things that, I'll call this out, so one of the things that Jim has been doing uh, during our interview, which I appreciate so much, and I'll call it out. I tell um, everyone who's ever interned for me, I tell them that if someone takes a meeting with you who's more senior professionally, always go in with a notepad because Jim has been taking notes while I've been writing things that, that connect for him. And what I always say is, especially if you're younger in, in work or in business, is that if you are writing down while you're speaking with someone, it just shows them that you're actively listening. And for me too, usually when I'm in meetings, I'll take notes. But it's that simple thing of like, I'm listening. Here's proof. <laughs> is, well, yeah. uh, for Meredith and I, 
Yeah. So we talked. <laughs> oh boy, do we ever! We tra- We talked about this with Dr. Chloe. We were hoping she would bring us some religion as to, you know what's with us. No, it, it's almost like a learning style. So we're constantly taking notes and jotting things down, and it's a way that we organize our thinking, and it's a way that we memorize. Essentially, um, when we prep for all sorts of things, we're always jotting notes down on on our prep work. So. Yeah. Yeah, Chloe, Chloe told us it was all right. <laughs> and she told us it was a, a great memory map. Yeah. Because, you know, some people are audio learners, some people are visual right. learners, and people who learn through note-taking. If I actually went to class and took notes, I didn't have to study for the exam. I'd yeah. just do a quick cursory review sure. because I'd already done the learning. Totally. Uh, but if if you – I know I'm a much better audio learner than I am uh, uh, a visual learner. So uh, so if I'm he- listening and I take the notes, it's it just changes the construct, the synapse in my brain. Yeah. All right. Beautiful. Well, I so for everyone who's listening, we're going to hyperlink uh, direct access to the newsletter, to the Connectivity Council, to the forum so that it's very easy to find those. And I will pass it over to you, Jim, for the final word as people are leaving this conversation. If you had one final word or thing that you would want them to keep in mind as it relates to uh, human connection, building community, relationships, what would you want them to walk away with? I did a uh, we did a, we do a thing here called uh, bring your uh, uh, bring your kids to work day. Uh, we do that in the spring. Then we created one called bring your mom to work, <laughs> uh, which is a way to get the office cleaned. Uh, and then this year we couldn't do it, so we did it virtually. And uh, for the kids, one they asked me to do something. And what I said to the kids uh, that day uh, is what I would how I'd answer your question now. And that is, we have so much power, each of us, to change how we feel and to change how people around us feel. So what we, what, uh, what I write about often in The Pulse with Meredith's editorial help and research is inciting people to use their power to change how people around them feel. So I just told you things uh, from a gift point of view that mean the most to me are not price, but intent. Uh, the message, the personalization. And uh, so I'd encourage you to think about, uh, at Flowers, my brother sends a note to everybody uh, congratulating them on their anniversary, how many years they're with us. And I send a note to them on their birthday every year. I am knocked out by the nice things I hear back from people who are surprised that we take the time to send them a note on their birthday. And then sometimes I think they're testing to see if I really do get their emails when they write back to me. And, and then when I write back to them again, I think it knocks them over. Uh, but it, it, but then when I meet that person in Medford, Oregon, who works at Harry and David, who I've had a nice, I'd never met in person, but we've had three or four nice birthday interactions. And I remember what they did on their 50th birthday. Uh, your, your relationship just jumps to a different place so much more quickly. So use your power. Use your power to change how other people feel, which back to the host idea, will change the way you feel. So giving somebody a compliment, remembering their birthday, sending them a note or a photograph just because you thought of them, uh, it'll change the way they feel, and in turn, that'll change the way you feel. Well, there we have it. Remember your power to impact others. Use it. Jim, Meredith, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Uh, really enjoyed it and uh, look forward to maybe sitting and having some breakfast together. It sounds like sometime <laughs> soon. We have some 
darn good uh, muffins. <laughs> All right, great. I'll get some freebies on the way out. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back soon.